In the case of three-year-old Corona Darius, you are not the father. I told you that quarantine baby wasn't mine. He don't look nothing like me. Welcome back, healthy people. Man, this episode of Mari was wow, real wow. That baby didn't look anything like him. Nothing at all. Nothing like him at all. But anyways, in today's HPI, aka Healthy People Information, I'll be discussing the most recent information the CDC released regarding measures that fully vaccinated people can now take. Fully vaccinated people are individuals who have been vaccinated with either the Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson vaccines. I'm unsure why they named their company Johnson & Johnson. We get it. Your name is Johnson. You didn't have to say it twice. Two weeks after receiving either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, you're considered fully vaccinated. If you receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a one-dose vaccine, you're also considered fully vaccinated after two weeks. Find that funny. They named their company Johnson & Johnson, but you only have to get the dose once. Hmm. So what does that mean you can do if you become fully vaccinated? Well, according to the CDC, it means you can have certain relaxed measures. What are those relaxed measures? One, you can gather indoors with fully vaccinated people without wearing a mask. Two, you can gather indoors with unvaccinated people from one other household. For example, visiting with relatives who all live together without masks. Unless any of those people or anyone they live with has increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19. I'll give some examples later of individuals who are at increased risk of severe illness from COVID-19. The third thing you can do is, if you've been around someone who has COVID-19, you do not need to stay away from others or get tested unless you have symptoms. However, if you live in a group setting, like a correctional or detention facility or group home and are around someone who has COVID-19, you should still stay away from others for 14 days and get tested, even if you don't have symptoms. Honestly, this was on the CDC website. I don't know if the correctional facilities are actually doing this. Logistically, it may be hard to perform this measure in a correctional setting. However, they should probably find some, not probably, they should find some way to keep inmates safe. That's just my opinion. Well, what hasn't changed regarding regulations? You should wear a mask and stay six feet apart in certain places, which include public places, gathering with unvaccinated people from more than one household, gathering with unvaccinated people from more than one other household, visiting with an unvaccinated person who is at increased risk of severe illness or death from COVID-19 or who lives with a person at increased risk. Well, who are individuals that are at increased risk? These individuals include diabetics, obese individuals, Dallas Cowboys fans, individuals with heart conditions, and a few other individuals. I'll put a link in the description of this podcast. If you click on that link, it'll have the um, information from the CDC of individuals who are at increased risk. You should still take steps to protect yourself and others in many situations, like wearing a mask, staying at least six feet apart from others, and avoiding crowds and poorly ventilated places. You should still watch out for symptoms of COVID-19. If you don't know what those symptoms are, you can go back and listen to one of the previous episodes that I've done. So watch out for those symptoms. 
when you've been around someone you know who is infected with COVID-19. If you have symptoms of COVID-19, you should get tested and stay away from others. At the end of this episode, I'll give some general information on what the CDC does and doesn't know about vaccinations thus far. In addition to this, I'll give my opinion on these new regulations. In today's episode, I'm chatting it up with Dr. Akila Jefferson Shaw. Dr. Akila Jefferson Shaw, MD, is an assistant professor of pediatrics, allergy, and immunology at the University of Arkansas for Medical Science College of Medicine. Whew, that's a long name for that institution. She completed her allergy and immunology fellowship training at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and residency in internal medicine at the George Washington University Hospital. She received her medical degree from Tulane University School of Medicine and her BA in Bioethics from Brown University. She is also trained in health policy and bioethics, completing postgraduate degrees in both fields at Georgetown University and the National Institutes of Health. In addition to taking care of patients, Dr. Jefferson Shaw is a researcher with the Arkansas Children's Research Institute Asthma Program. Her research focuses on asthma, healthcare disparities, health policy, the intersections of healthcare and clinical research and bioethics. I mean, I think I'm smart, but after learning more about her and reading her bio, Dr. Shaw is smart smart. Like if she sneezes, I bet a couple of books fall out of her naturally curly hair. It's like, oh, that's where I put that immunology book. Well, that's one of the main reasons I want to have her on the podcast. If anybody knows what they're talking about, it's going to be her. We discuss all things COVID, including the healthcare disparities surrounding COVID, research, and the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Well, let's get into the interview with Dr. Shaw. I'm going to go back to watching this episode of more. That name, Corona Darius. Whew. Man, these people are going to be coming up with some wild names post-COVID. All right, let's get into the interview. So welcome, Dr. Jefferson Shaw, to the podcast. I appreciate you getting on and joining me. We finally made it and linked up together. Finally made it. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You representing the 504? Always. All Always. Right. All right. Shout out to the whole 504. Shout out to uh, 337. Shout out to 225, all those area codes, 409, my people as well. I have people all through Louisiana, Plaquemine, Rain, Lake Charles, all those little cities um, where my family's from. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I'm like, I love, I love Louisiana connections. So that's good. Oh yeah. We, we next door neighbors. All my family comes from Louisiana. So I love me some good, uh, Louisiana food. We might get into that a little bit later, but welcome. Give your background a little bit for the people. I know a little bit about from what I've read as far as going to Brown, then your intern. I'm going to let you kind of give your background too. So like you said, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm from uptown New Orleans, Louisiana, if we want to be specific specific with it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But born and raised, and I left uh, for college. So I went to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, studied uh, pre-med there, and then also studied bioethics, which kind of really permeates a lot of the stuff that I do um, these days. After college, I moved to Washington, D.C. and did a master's in health policy there. And then after that, I went to med school finally. I went to Tulane in New Orleans and went back home and 
uh, studied there. After that, left, went back to D.C. for all my the rest of my training, basically. So I did internal medicine at George Washington University Hospital and then did my allergy and immunology fellowship at the National Institutes of Health. I've been living kind of all over the place. I did work in California for about three years. And currently, um, as of September 2020, I am at University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences here in Little Rock, Arkansas, and Arkansas Children's Hospital. So I'm in the Division of Allergy and Immunology, and also I'm a researcher in their asthma program. So that's kind of the the short version (laughs) of my background. Okay, so you've seen, it seems like, pretty much all of the country. Everything except the Midwest, really. Mm -hmm. You know, some people call Arkansas the Midwest or like the lower Midwest, but Mm -hmm. I consider Arkansas the South. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) What made you go to Brown? I um, wanted to get out of Louisiana, number Mm -hmm. one, just to kind of experience other places. I have four sisters and all of them went to school in Boston. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, Boston's kind of nice. I don't know if I want to be in a big city and um, apply kind of throughout the New England area to a lot of small colleges and some bigger ones too, and got into Brown and really liked it. It was a very good experience to have, we call us the Brown Girl uh, Crew, my my crew of of girls from college and, Mm -hmm. you know, connected there and have all done well. And I, I should clarify, crew of all Black girls who were at Brown. You know, just had, it's a really wonderful place, I think, to learn and to grow. And they have a lot of, um, they want you to be a really independent thinker, which I think is very good, especially for a young person who, um, you know, just grew up in the South like me. I didn't have a lot of other experiences. So it really opened my eyes to a lot of new things. Okay. Who's a part of the Brown Girl group? I'm going to shout them out. So <laughs> we have all the way in Stockholm, Sweden, Miss Sheena Ruffin. We have all the way in Chicago, Carmel Romaine. We have in D.C., Alanma Okoji. We have Colette Spaulding. And we have Michelle Ann Wilson. Right outside D.C., we have Kezia. And then in uh, Augusta, Georgia, we have Lindsay West Rollock. So that's most of the girls. There are a few others who kind of trickle in and out. But that's the <laughs> that's the main the main crew right there. That's the, the cohort right there of the Brown <laughs> Girl group. What kind of industries are they in? So funny enough, most of them are doctors too. Mm-hmm. So doctors, one of uh, one is a lawyer, one is a social media and otherwise just media expert. That's the one in Stockholm. We have a, a psychologist, that's Lindsay. And I think that's, yeah, that's everything. That's everything. The rest of them are doctors. Okay. <laughs> y'all killing it. They teaching y'all well at Brown. <laughs> Trying to kill it. Right. Trying. So where did you do your um, your fellowship at? So I did my fellowship at National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, um, in allergy and immunology. And that's kind of how I got into, I don't think a lot of people realize for allergy, you have to cross train in adults and in pediatrics. And so I'm an adult trained doctor, but I mostly see kids now because I kind of cross trained along the way, which I think is a nice mix. You get to kind of see lots of different things. You don't have to make a decision early on which population you want to work with. And you can always kind of go back and forth. So I think it's a good, a good one. What made you uh, go into allergy and immunology? Yeah, so I grew up with horrible allergies. Springtime is not my friend. I have asthma. I have food allergies. I have eczema, everything. In my family, my mom had allergies, but of my four sisters, really, I had the worst of it. The rest of them kind of, you know, a little bit here and there, but nothing major. I was always in the doctor's office, always taking inhalers, all that stuff. And so 
I was really interested in kind of what made certain people more susceptible to allergies and other problems than others. And in med school, when I started to learn about it, mostly I learned about the immune system, it, I was hooked. I think mm-hmm. it's so fascinating how, um, just really how the environment can influence your health, but then also how genetics and other things can really influence your health. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to have to bring you back one day for a discussion on allergy stuff. Absolutely. I know it'll be a lot of people like, oh, I want Dr. Randy to talk to me about allergy stuff because I'm sneezing and I'm coughing every time I go outside somewhere. So just to kind of go back and touch on something that you just kind of mentioned about the immunology aspect of what you had to study in your background. Can you give a little bit more information on that? What what you had to study in your training for the immunology aspect? So you have basically two different kinds of immunologists. You have people who are allergist immunologists like me, and then you have some people who are basic scientists immunologists mostly. Mm -hmm. And they usually work in lab spaces. A lot of those people are the ones who developed all the vaccines for COVID-19 and other types of vaccines too. When I was studying, so when I was in medical school, really the immune system is, is that part of your body that tells every cell what to do when it comes in contact with other things. So if it's that you come in contact with a virus or a bacteria or something you're allergic to or something that you eat, whatever it is, your body has to have um, a way to really recognize those things and know how to deal with them. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they going to hurt you? Are they not going to hurt you? When it comes to things like viruses and bacteria, of course, we don't want those in our bodies. And so our immune system is really the top fighter to get rid of those things and to mount that response, that immune response that we need to um, protect ourselves. And, you know, you have all different kinds of cells. You have B cells that fight mostly bacteria, T cells that fight mostly viruses and fungus. You have natural killer cells, like all kinds of stuff. And that's all the stuff you start to learn in medical school. But I'll say once you get into, you know, either if you if you did residency in internal medicine or pediatrics or family medicine, and then once you get into like allergy and immunology fellowship, that's where you get in deep dive into the immune system. And so, you know, throughout this whole time, we'll probably talk about this throughout this whole uh, pandemic, really, I've tried to break down how the immune system works. Uh And kind of simpler terms, because it's super complicated. Uh I think, you know, it's something that people study for years and years and years. You can't study it in a year and get it, you know? Like Uh I've studied it from medical school, which was four years, residency for three years, fellowship for another three years. And then I've been working, right, for several years now um, outside of training. And throughout all that time, studying the immune system, and I still haven't scratched the surface of it. Uh So... It's fascinating. Um, I think it's a great field to study and to learn about. And, you know, you get the basics, right? But then you can always deep, you know, do that deep dive um, if you're interested and if you want to with more training. Right, right. That was one of the hardest classes. Like I took part of it in undergrad. And I remember going on spring break trips and keeping my immunology book with me (laughs) going on those trips because I'm like, it's so much stuff to study for immunology that you just can't like take a break from it. Like, oh, I'm going to spring break. And I'm like, nope. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> nope. Not at all. <laughs> so that was kind of one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on just to talk kind of because of your background. And I know if anybody knows about how to fight off infections and bacteria and viruses, you would have that knowledge and would be able to kind of display it for the world and show all your black girl magic and stuff like that. <laughs> so... There's this new hot virus around called COVID. I'm sure you're pretty 
well informed about it. So what was your initial thoughts when COVID arrived or when you first heard about COVID? Yeah. So, so when I first heard about it, back up just a little bit, when I did my fellowship at the NIH, you know, it was around the time of Ebola Mm -hmm. and we had Ebola patients coming in. We had research trials going on, looking for vaccines for Ebola and all these things. And, you know, we were always kind of thinking about new viruses and new kind of novel bacteria and all that kind of stuff. So just generally, since my training, I always, whenever something new pops up, I remember how I was as a fellow and being like, "Uh oh, is this going to be something that kind of is there and then goes away on its own? Or is it going to be something that's a real problem? And we've seen that, you know, from the first SARS virus that was in like 2002, 2003. And then we had the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus in the later 2000s. And then now with this novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19, my first thought was, man, I really hope this is not like Ebola. That's what I really thought. And to me, Ebola is horrible and terrible and deadly, but... Ebola did not really spread to the U.S. so much, right? It was mostly in West Africa. We had a few cases here in the United States, but those cases were devastating. And so I thought about it like that, like, oh, man, you know, this is in China. It's probably going to spread a little bit, but then, you know, we'll be able to get it under control. But even that small spread is going to be so bad for, you know, those people who are impacted. Uh I never once thought that this virus would be what it is today, where we have like 28 million people infected in the U.S. We have over 500,000 people dead in the United States. You know, I don't think a lot of people fathomed the um, sheer magnitude that this virus would have over the past year. Why didn't Ebola spread and why did this one spread? I think that, you know, Ebola, people were very afraid. People were very aware. And when I say people, I mean medical people, I mean public health people, and I also mean just the general kind of public, right? Mm -hmm. But people were like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't want Ebola. We had travel restrictions. We had screening that was being done. We had all these measures in place to prevent Ebola from spreading. And so when we did have spread, we had, for instance, one person who traveled to the United States, and then we had nurses who took care of that person. Those were kind of isolated events, right? But there was not a whole lot of just dragging our feet, so to speak. And I think with this, we, as a general population, we kind of didn't take it seriously, unfortunately. And in the beginning, you know, there weren't huge mask mandates. There was not a lot of screening of people traveling in and out of the country, not just because we know that in the United States, it wasn't just from um, spread from people who travel from China. That's not what happened. It was people coming from Europe. It was people coming from China. It was people coming from all different types of places. We have absolutely no screening in place at that time, back in January, February, March, April, May, June. I'm like, when did the, the you know, when did we start really? <laughs> many, many months. So, you know, really a whole lot, nothing, a whole lot of nothing was being done. And I think it was downplayed a whole lot, right? So there were some people definitely in the public health world who um, took it more seriously in the very, very beginning because they knew the potential. But I think from like a federal government standpoint, It was downplayed a whole lot from a state government standpoint for most places until they had a lot of cases. It was really downplayed, unfortunately. And, you know, it cost a lot of people not only just getting sick and getting better, but people getting sick, not getting better. And then, of course, people dying. Right. 
Do you think if certain measures were put in earlier, we could have saved a whole bunch of more lives? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I think, yeah, without a doubt. Right. What, in your opinion, makes this virus different from other viruses that you've studied or other bacteria that you've studied along in your training? This is a smart virus. It's able to get into the body and it's able to infect our cells in a very easy kind of a way. So there are these ACE receptors that we have in our cells and then there are these proteins on the outside of the virus that attach to those receptors. Some cells don't really attach well. And so if you don't attach well, then you can't infect, you know, you can't infect us. This virus attaches very, very well via, you know, different mechanisms to our human cells, giving it the ability to really infect very easily. The other thing is that since it's a novel virus, meaning our bodies have never seen this particular virus before, our immune system is not very well equipped to be able to put up defenses when it comes in contact with the, this coronavirus. So um, that's the second way that it's able to really do its thing in a very efficient way. And the third thing I'll say is that the virus, the incubation period, remember, can be from like two days to 14 days until people have symptoms. It's a very long time. So you can be infected and then going about your business, your day-to-day life, and not realize you're infected all the way infecting other people. And so it's really able to spread easily that way too. With flu, if you're if you're uh, in contact with flu, usually within a day or two, you feel sick, right? And so then you know, okay, I need to not be around people. I need to take care of myself so I don't spread this to someone else. But if you had a flu for two weeks and you didn't know till day 14 that you were sick, how many people do you come in contact with in that two weeks that you could potentially infect? Right. I think some people don't realize that that you may not have symptoms for that long time period or they go and travel somewhere and they get a test before they leave, one of the rapid tests, and it comes back negative, like, oh, I'm good. Like, No, you need to maybe get that at like five days afterwards, maybe the best time to get that type of test. Exactly, exactly. All the tests, you know, you got to remember snapshots in time. And if you happen to just click your camera right at the wrong time, you're not going to get the full picture of what's going on. In your training, did y'all have any classes where y'all would let's just say theoretically make up a virus and make up a bacteria just to see what kind of effect that it would have like on the world? Not specifically, but we would kind of think through what would happen in certain scenarios. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, we, we, part of, since I, my training was within a government program, right? So we always thought of disaster protocols. What's Mm going to happen if we have another issue with Ebola? What's going to happen if we have an issue with anthrax, smallpox? Like we, one of the things too is is sort of thinking of biodefense. And we we thought about it kind of in that way. But then we also thought about these naturally occurring viruses, like the first type of SARS Mm -hmm. and the um, MERS virus too, and kind of what happens, how did they spread? How did those places um, stop the spread? And if it happened here, what will we need to do to stop the spread also? So I would say, you know, in that way, we kind of tried to play with it a little bit to see how we should respond. And from those lessons, again, I'll say the response here in the United States was terrible, right? Mm -hmm. Based on just those lessons that we had just as students, as trainees, we knew the response that we had that the United States had back in March, April of 2020 was not going to be adequate at all. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's, has it affected the minority community in particular? 
So when did you start noticing the lack of response affecting the minority community? Yeah, I would say probably March of 2020. So I was still living in California. I was living in San Diego Mm -hmm. when COVID first started. And I flew home to New Orleans the last, I think it was the last weekend in February for a wedding. And at that point, people were starting to like notice it a little bit, right? Like a few people with masks on, I wore a mask on the plane. Um, People were wiping stuff down, but it wasn't, you know, everyone wasn't super concerned. Louisiana at that point did not have any cases yet. Mm -hmm. Um, They actually had their case. I want to say the week after I came back to California, but you know, it was kind of like, oh, there's this thing. They had it in Washington. They have it in New York. We're probably not going to get it here. Not a big deal. Right. The maybe second or third week of March is when cases started to skyrocket in New Orleans, Louisiana. And it was probably about three or four weeks after Mardi Gras, which they think was a super spreader event in the city. And around that time, remember, almost all my family is in New Orleans. Around that time, we had several family members getting sick, like several. I've had several family members who died. Hmm. And that's when I noticed, because one of the craziest things to me was I got on a call with some of my colleagues in California and we're talking about this virus and how it's so crazy. And I'm like, yeah, you know, this cousin and that cousin and that cousin and this person, all these people I knew who who got it. And all of my colleagues, not they didn't know anyone, not one person mm-hmm. who had COVID-19. And they, all my colleagues were white, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, <laughs> why? you know, what, uh, why am I the only one here? And they were like, you know, that many people I'm like, yeah, like I can, I'm missing fingers now. I can't count. I don't have enough fingers to count how many people I know who have COVID-19. And, you know, as time has gone on, clearly those people now know people who have it, but early on for months, they didn't know anyone who had Mm COVID-19. And why do you think that? I mean, why did that happen? You know, a lot of it is, is a similar story that we see with other, um, bad diseases is, you know, there are events that happen in vulnerable places. And when I say vulnerable, I'm like, to me, New Orleans is a vulnerable place for many reasons, mm-hmm. from an, an infrastructure standpoint, from a lots of people with underlying health conditions standpoint, from a economic standpoint, there's so many social determinants of health that put people kind of in a bad situation already. And then you add a highly contagious and deadly virus on top of it you know, people are not going to do well. And that impacts people who are um, vulnerable. And I would say kind of socioeconomically vulnerable, but it also impacts everybody in that entire community, whether you have money, you don't have money, whether you have a a high paying job or not, whatever it is, all those people were impacted because everyone is so interconnected. Right. And so, you know, I think that makes a huge difference. The last thing I'll say is that unfortunately, people who belong to those places, who live in those places are oftentimes not, oh, what's the word I want to use? They're not cared for in a way that they should be in general. So the resources, you know, Louisiana, they had to fight, fight, fight to get resources down there to help the people in that state. New York was fighting, California was fighting, but they had kind of more muscle in the game, right? People paid attention to them a bit more. In a place like Louisiana, a place like Mississippi, a place like Alabama, people were not paying attention because um, they, they didn't consider those populations a priority, unfortunately. And so then you get all these bad outcomes as a result. And you've got, done a lot of research in this type of area. Um, can you talk about some of the research that you've done in medical bias? Yeah, yeah. So 
I do. So I'm mostly a asthma health disparities researcher, right? But I also, I kind of briefly m- mentioned earlier, I'm a, I consider myself a bioethicist also, and I've done training undergrad and graduate school training in that too. And so I, you know, I think a whole lot and write a whole lot and study a whole lot and research a whole lot <laughs> about the intersection between healthcare and how people get their healthcare mm-hmm. and uh, the relationship between that and healthcare providers, how people are treated because of their background, whether it is race, ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation, gender, the language that they speak, their, you know, whatever their job is, all those things. And so I've written a lot and researched a lot about using intersectionality in clinical medicine and how people can, can be not only mistreated, but how we as medical providers should be cognizant of all those things and try to make our clinical encounters less biased, Mm -hmm. less um, burdensome for people and kind of check our biases at the door. That's kind of one thing. The other thing I'll say is that from kind of an asthma health disparities standpoint, which I work in a whole, whole lot, you know, there's a lot of work that up to 80% of, of bad asthma outcomes are due to social determinants of health, like racism like housing issues, like socioeconomic status, all this stuff. It's not necessarily just that someone is is or is not taking their inhaler. It's not that simple. And really highlighting that, because I think a lot of times patients get a bad rap from doctors, right? Well, you're not doing this or you're not doing that. When really the question should be, how can we help you better do whatever it is that we need you to do? And how can we better help your home environment? How can we better help, you know, resources that you need? And that starts from us asking the question, what is it that you need for us to help you make your health a little bit better? Right, right. And that's a good point right there that you made. I kind of want to go back and touch on something that you just kind of mentioned. How do people get to their health care? That's very specific. Like for those who don't understand, what, what do you kind of mean by that? Yeah. So you can think of it in a few different ways, but Um, One, you know, thinking of access to care, sometimes people think of things like transportation. That's one. Can you actually, do you have a car to get to where you need to go? Do you have gas in the car to get to where you need to go? Is there a bus route? If you don't have a car, do you have to walk? Kind of all those things. The other is really being able to navigate the healthcare system. So the healthcare system for many people, including myself, is very hard to navigate a lot of times Mm -hmm. and hard to find the right kind of doctor that you need hard to make an appointment, hard to do all these, you know, what should be simple tasks. It's very, very hard and convoluted. And if you don't have health literacy in some ways, then it makes it even more difficult. If you don't have different resources through, let's say, your health insurance carrier, sometimes they'll have people who can help you navigate a bit more. If you don't have that, you're kind of on your own. And so your access, there's so many points where you have barriers to your access to care. There are so many different points I could make there, but they, you know, here right now with the research I'm doing, I work a little bit in access from a urban and a rural standpoint. And I think with urban things, we, we think about uh, public transportation, we think about language barriers, all those types of things. With our rural populations, they have very similar needs and they are very, very underserviced. In rural places, we think about the distance to care. So it's not just across town. It could be hours and hours and hours to get to where you need to go. It could be that 
on top of that, you don't have a car or on top of that, your car broke down and no, you know, none of us are, are talking about those things. And so thinking about ways that we can make things better, we, we do a lot of work with telemedicine, for instance, to try to bring medicine to those people in their homes. But even there, you have access issues, making sure people have high speed internet is another kind of big thing. So, and I don't mean to say all this to say it's un- insurmountable because it's not, but it's just stuff we have to think about if we're really serious about improving access, improving how people get their health care. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, sometimes patients don't realize that until something wrong happens, mm-hmm. uh, until you need to go see that cardiologist and your doctor has to put in a referral and then you have to go like 20 miles across town just to go see yeah. your cardiologist and then your primary care doctor is another 10 miles in another, in another direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a problem. Well, that was part one of the interview with Dr. Shaw. We were really getting into some deep conversation just then. We'll keep the deep conversation going in episode two. Make sure you all go follow her IG page, which is in the show description. She releases informative videos on a regular basis. Shout out to her brown girl crew that's been killing it. And to go back and touch on the COVID vaccine info I discussed earlier, what does the CDC know thus far regarding COVID vaccines? Well, they are effective at preventing diseases. They also work well against some of the new virus variants, but not all of them. They're still doing research on which ones they work well against and which ones they don't work well against. It is not currently known how long the effectiveness from these vaccines will last. That research is also still being done. In the future, we may need to get booster vaccines. So just look out for more information on that in the future if you may need to get a yearly vaccine for COVID, just like the flu vaccine. And notice I'm using the word vaccine. I don't like using the word shot anymore. It kind of sounds violent. I mean, we correlate shots with guns. And using the word vaccine seems a little bit less violent compared to the word shot. So it may encourage individuals more so to feel less threatened when getting a vaccine as opposed to saying, uh, you trying to get this shot? I'd rather say, would you like to get vaccinated? My opinion on all of this is wear a mask, wash your hands, and continue to social distance as much as you are able to. A lot of the measures I mentioned earlier require you to ask people their medical history and if they've been vaccinated. Some people may or may not be comfortable sharing that information with you. Some people may just not want you in their business and asking them what's their medical history and asking if they're in a high risk category or may not share with you why they didn't get vaccinated. However, some people may be open and willing and free to share that information. So just make sure you be prepared for possibly awkward conversations or someone may not be willing to share that information with you. Um, So that's just kind of the risk of hanging out with individuals. You gotta know who you're hanging out with and if they're safe to hang around with in their activity. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share with others if you enjoyed this podcast and this episode. Thanks to Ashley J.O. for leaving a comment on Apple Podcasts. We're almost at 30 comments, y'all. Keep them coming. On call with Dr. Randy and Dr. Randy is blowing up. See Johnson & Johnson, how stupid it sounds when you say your name twice. On call with Dr. Randy and Dr. Randy. 
brought that joke full circle. Follow me on IG, Twitter, at underscore Dr. Randy. Look forward to a new episode dropping soon next week. I'm doing two more COVID-themed episodes, and then we're going to switch it up again for a little while. I've done more COVID episodes than I thought I was going to do. You're welcome. And I hope you got some good information, but I'm getting tired of COVID just like everyone else is, but we're going to make this through together. So look out for part two of the episode with Dr. Shaw dropping next week. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.